Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to all our brothers and sisters who have joined us in church this morning for worship of our triune God. We also extend a special welcome to all the visitors who have joined us this morning here in church and to those who are with us remotely via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel and may God be praised and glorified by our worship. Consistory has the following announcements. Several families who have been regular visitors in our congregation have requested to formally join the Freeformed Church of Southern River. <clears throat> Having considered their motives as well as their knowledge of scripture and confessions, Consistory with great thankfulness to the Lord resolved to grant these requests. If no lawful objections are brought forward by the 21st of November, we look forward to the following brothers and sisters publicly professing their faith on Sunday the 4th of December in the morning service. Julian and Mary Moon, with Julian also receiving adult baptism, Brad and Megan Stevens, Kyle and Ashley Peters, and Dylan and Alyssa Atkinson. Their respective children, Job, Caleb and Jack Moon, Josh Stevens, Bowden and Lila Peters, and Harley and Callan Atkinson, will also be welcomed as members from that day. Following the profession of faith, we will also be privileged to witness the baptisms of Caleb and Jack Moon, Bowden and Lila Peters and Harley and Callan Atkinson. Consistory with Deacons will meet tomorrow evening at 7.30pm followed by an elders only meeting at 8.30pm. And Brother Plater will lead the worship service this morning. Before we commence the worship service let us sing together from Psalm 96 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, let's rise for worship. The very outset of our worship, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen. And God greets you this morning, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us continue our worship and let's sing praises to our God for his gracious rule. And we'll do so with the words of Psalm 113 verses 1 through 3.
Now we turn to God's word, his ten words of his covenant law. As we do so, we look at it as a perfect mirror into which we see our own sinfulness. And in turn, we look to the perfect uh, righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here God's laws, it comes to us in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And in response to the law, we'll also sing a psalm of confession. We'll do so with the words of Psalm 32.
we just sang together, Blessed is the man whose trespasses is forgiven, against whom you, O Lord, will graciously not count his guilt and his iniquity. In Psalm 32, the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Our God is not stingy with forgiveness, and so let us come to him and ask for forgiveness for the sins that we've committed in this week, and also ask that he would bless us as we open his word. Let us pray. O Lord God and Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who forgives sinners. Lord, we live in a world where forgiveness is not given so freely and, and so generously. People are quick to expose the faults of others, but not to bring restoration, but to rather humiliate them, to shun them, to even cancel them. Lord, as soon as we find fault with a historical figure, our society tears him down. We pull the books off the shelf. He's forgotten. He's no longer welcome in society. Father, this is the world in which we live. But Lord, we praise you that it's not the same with you. Even though we deserve to be shunned, even though we deserve to be humiliated and cast from your presence because of our sin, Lord, you don't. Instead, you forgive us because of Jesus, our Savior. You cover our sins and failings. You expose our sin not to humiliate us, but to humble us so that we might find forgiveness in you. Lord, for this is who you are. You are merciful. You are gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. You do not withhold your forgiveness, but you freely give it to those who earnestly seek you. And so, Lord, with boldness, because of Jesus Christ, we come before your throne of grace and we ask that you would forgive us. That you would forgive the sins of this past week, that you would forgive us for trying to hide them, for belittling them, for even justifying them. Lord, please don't look at us and see our sin, but look at us and see the perfect holiness of Christ, our Savior. Cleanse us, wash us clean, that we may desire to live for you and, and desire to love you and also have strength to live for you and to fight against the sins and weaknesses that so often beset us. And Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would also open our hearts, that you would open our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we read the Bible, that your word and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear it with joy and that we may do what you say to us. Give us the grace that we may clearly understand it and also give us the grace that we may freely choose to live in the way of blessing. Father, hear us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, my intention is to preach God's word to you as it comes from Genesis 42. And it's been some time since we've come back to the book of Genesis. And so if you may recall, Genesis 42 is the, the reunion with the brothers, the first time. And if we start from the beginning in Genesis 37, you have the, the discord and the disunity that was in the family. And it came to a point where the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. He continued in slavery for years on end. And then finally, God lifted him up. He raised him to the heights of Pharaoh's throne, where he was serving as, as a ruler. And then as part of that, he was also storing up uh, 
uh, grain for the famine. And because of the famine that went through all the land, all the people come to Egypt for grain. And so this is the context in which we read Genesis 42. So Genesis 42, we'll read the, the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy again for grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was a governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them, Where do you come from? he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. 
Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying. What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan. They told them all that had happened to them saying. The man the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us. And took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him. We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers sons of our father. One is no more and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver uh, deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Let us now also sing and and praise God with the words of Psalm 104, verses 1 and 7.
Our text this morning is Genesis 42, the verses 1 through 28, and since we have read those together, we'll proceed to the, the proclamation of the gospel, and then afterwards we'll sing in response hymn 18, verses 1 and 3. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the reunion of of family members is often a time of of great joy. Maybe you can think of a family being reunited after a long period of separation at the airport, or you could think of a milestone anniversary, you think of maybe a Christmas dinner, everyone coming together, there are often times of a lot of joy. And in such moments, we can often say how good it is when family is united, when with one another's company delighted. But at the same time, sometimes the reunion of family members is often a period of much stress, tension, and anxiety. If you think of Christmas time, for many families, it's a time of joy, but for some, it's a lot of stress simply because there's so much tension and there's so much hostility in the family makes the dinners unbearable, it makes, sometimes it flares up in further tension, and old wounds are opened up. So sometimes it's great to be with family, and other times not. And we understand the reason for this, because if you simply put two people together in the same room, it doesn't mean that they're actually united. Something more has to happen. Something more has to happen for those relationships that are severed by some sort of tension and some sort of argument or anything like that, that has to be dealt with. Because if you just put the two people in a room, the hurt is still there. So there has to be a change. There has to be a change of heart for for there to truly be union and reconciliation in our relationships that are are shattered, shattered by sin. And if we think of Jacob's family in our text, that is a family that has been shattered by sin and failing, failure. The family had been torn apart by the brother's sin against Joseph. And so when we, when we hear Joseph name his son Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house, we think, good on him. Move on, Joseph. Forget all that family mess that you've experienced, start afresh. Don't let those shattered relationships hold you back. And yet, God had another plan for this people. God had another plan for this family. And that was to bring them together once again after 13 years of being separated. 13 years after the brothers had sold Joseph into slavery, God brings them back together in our passage. And what we see is that God brings them together and it's to begin a journey of reconciliation. That brings us to our theme. The message for this morning is that God awakens the heart of his people to bring about reconciliation or to bring about unity, you could say. And so first we'll see that there is a, this happened because of a preordained encounter. And then we see that it also was caused by a test that Joseph gave his brothers And then finally, we see that it leads to a powerful conviction. So firstly, then, a preordained encounter. 
So as mentioned previously, by the time we get to Jacob's family household, things are looking very bleak. Think of Jacob. Jacob is a man who is bereaved of his children. He is grieving. He is overwhelmed with grief. The brothers, they tried to comfort him, but he said to them, No, I will go down to Sheol in mourning. And in the final verses of chapter 42, we see a similar thing. It comes back. He says, I will go down in, in gray hairs to Sheol. Here's a man who is broken, who's despairing of the promises of God. A man who can't see his way through life. Think of the promises that God made to his people, that he would make them a great nation. Well, here Jacob it is, is, and he's thinking so much for becoming a great nation. My family is not increasing, it's decreasing. And so that's Jacob's grief. But then if you look at the relationship between Jacob and his sons, there's so much hostility between them. The brothers hated Joseph because Joseph was well-loved, because he was favored by his father. And so they got rid of him. But then what you see is that because their father daily mourned for Joseph, it was again a constant reminder to the brothers who their dad loved. And it wasn't the other brothers, it was Joseph. And what we see is even though Joseph is removed out of the picture, that his dad's, their dad's love and his favoritism moves from Joseph to Benjamin, to the, son, the other son of Rachel. And so Benjamin now becomes the apple of Jacob's eye. He becomes the favorite son, the one who is well-loved. So again, it doesn't help the relationship with the brothers at all. The rest of the brothers continue to be second-rate in the family. And then just think of the shattered trust. Over the past decade, it's interesting, Jacob had time to think about what had happened at Dothan so many years ago. And we get a hint of this in verse 4 of our text, uh, in, yeah, in verse 4 of our text where he says, where it says there, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And the original wording of the, the harm, it actually, it's, it can be translated, for he feared that an accident might occur. It alludes to an unfortunate accident, like something like a son being torn apart by, from an animal while his brothers were away. So there seems to be that Jacob didn't quite believe his brother's, the, the son's alibi. And so this is the situation of the family. You have grief, there's bereavement, there is friction in the, the relationships, there is just shattered trust. And so that's the context. There's all this distrust and pain. And so it seems that the future of Jacob's family is very bleak. And this was made worse by the famine. We see that the family was at its wit's end trying to care for themselves. The, fam the famine, as we saw last time when we were looking at Genesis 41, we saw that the famine wasn't isolated to Egypt, but it had spread throughout all the land. So that everyone, if they wanted food, they had to go to Egypt. And so Jacob's family was in crisis. This was a matter of life and death. The brothers, they've tried everything. But now we're at a loss. They were sitting together, looking at each other, wondering what would become of their families. They explored every option. Every option, of course, except for one. 
says there, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down, buy grain for us there. Egypt was their only chance of survival. They had to go down. And moreover, we saw that in chapter 41, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the land. So their only hope was the storehouses in Egypt. And so the brothers, they go off, off to Egypt to find food for their families. And then we have that, that interesting verse. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him. Now, just note how it references there. It tells us again, Joseph is governor over all the land. That's what we read about in chapter 41. He had ascended to the throne, and now he was, he was in a, a position of power and authority, and he looked over all the, the grain stores. And so what's happening is the author is building up our anticipation for this reunion with the family. And not only is he building up that anticipation, he's also highlighting that there's more going on behind the scenes here. That this reunion with the brothers is not a coincidence. God had preordained this. God had planned this. If you think of the, the story so far, it wasn't by chance that the famine had spread through the whole land. It wasn't by chance that Jake and Joseph had come into Egypt. And it wasn't by chance that Joseph had now ascended to the throne of Egypt as second to the Pharaoh and was looking after all the stores for grain. It wasn't by chance that he was in such a position of power. And so while everything seems so bleak for Jacob's family, the author is showing us that even though this family seems to be on the brink of ruin, God and his providence is at work. He had used the brother's evil to bring Joseph to Egypt because he was preparing a place for that family in Egypt to then bring them out in the Exodus, if we think of the whole sort of narrative. And so he's fulfilling these grand promises that he made to Abraham. But what is amazing is that as God is fulfilling these grand promises, he doesn't neglect this family that has been destroyed. He does both at the same time. He fulfills his promises while restoring the relationship that has been broken. So God had used the evil of the brothers to accomplish his plan, but now God was bringing uh, that evil, he was reconciling that evil, and bringing restoration. He wasn't just going to leave this family in ruins. God in his perfect power, he was doing both at the same time. He uses the famine to reunite Joseph and the brothers and also to restore the relationship. And so we see that it was, it was preordained. God had this lined up from eternity past. There was nothing that was by chance about this encounter here in Genesis 42. And so God was bringing them together to reunite the brothers. But then we see that God uses a pointed test to bring that about. And that brings us to our second point. So as mentioned earlier, merely bringing two people together doesn't lead to unity. It doesn't lead to healing a relationship. And so for this to happen, there has to be a change in heart. 
And so we see that not only does God guide the events to lead Joseph and his brothers to, to meet each other again, but he also governs it in such a way that their consciences of the brothers are awakened. And he does that through a test. So the brothers, they make their long trek to Egypt and they come before Joseph. And we read that Joseph recognized them, but the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. And then seeing the brothers bow down before him, He recalls something. He recalls to mind the dreams that he had. Verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Just think about what that would have done for Joseph. For years he'd been in a prison. He'd been wallowing away. And yet he'd held on to God. God in his faithfulness that was with Joseph. And, And Joseph still believed him. Even though when his... Hopes were raised, they came shattering down after the, uh, the butler forgot to, to mention him to Pharaoh. And yet here he is. Now he suddenly sees the brothers bowing down before him. And what that would have done, was it would have made him know that God is really with me. God was confirming his faith there. He was saying, God has my back. He's promised to look after me and he will look after me. Just look, here is the fulfillment of my dreams. The dreams that happened so many years ago. And it's very likely that his recognition of the dream actually helped him to be more gracious to his brothers in this passage. Because in that moment, he understood that God was really with him in a profound way. And he could have confidence that this too, this encounter with his brothers, was also something that God was at work in. You know, congregation, sometimes God does that for us. You know, you, you struggle for years on end with something and you're wondering whether, whether or not God is up to in your life and you're trying to figure that out and you're caught up in all the brokenness. And isn't it true that sometimes God just gives you these glimpses where it's almost as if heaven is pulled back and you're able to look up into heaven and you almost see what God is doing and where God confirms you. He confirms you in your faith. He shows you that your belief in him is not something that, sh- that puts you to shame, but rather you can trust him. Where he, he assures you of his power and of, your, of his presence in his life. And this is what we see with Joseph. Joseph, as it were, he almost saw heaven pulled back. And he saw for a moment what God was doing. And God was confirming him in that. Now back to our text. So at this point, Joseph doesn't reveal his identity. Instead, he speaks roughly to them. Treating them as a stranger, it says. And he accuses of them being spies. You are spies. You have come to seek the nakedness of the land. You have come to see the the weak point in our defenses. Now it's interesting. Some read this and they see a very vengeful Joseph in these verses. So they argue that Joseph recognized the brothers. He recognized them. He saw the kind of fulfillment of dreams. And he said, ha, now I'm going to get you back. And so he gives them a taste of their own medicine as it were. And so they would see Joseph treating them as strangers as payback for when the brothers treated Joseph as strangers. Or later on, when Joseph imprisons the brothers, they see that as payback for when Joseph himself was imprisoned. So it's kind of a tit-for-tat situation going on. But actually, this uh, this is probably the furthest thing from the truth. And the rest of the chapter makes that clear to us. 
It shows us that Joseph deeply cared about his brothers. He deeply cared about them. And we see that with his interactions with them. So he accuses them in verse 9, you are spies. And the brothers say to him, no, we're, we're sons of one man. We're honest men. Which if you think about it, wasn't really the best line to use on Joseph. And then in the next verses, we see the test. So the brothers thought that Joseph was simply telling them, go back, go home, find your brother, bring him back over here, because that's how I'm going to know you're not spies. I'm going to verify your word. But notice how there's a repetition, so that I might verify your, know, your word and know if you are honest men. It comes back time and time again. If you are honest men, do this. And so what... Joseph is actually doing, he's presenting the brothers with, with a situation where they can do to another of their brothers exactly what they did to Joseph. He's testing them to see if they're going to forsake their brother again. And we see that in verses 19 and 20 and also in verse 25. So in verse 19 he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And then in verse 25, Joseph gives orders to put, grain in there, to, to put the money back in the sacks and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give him provisions for the journey. So what he's doing, he's testing them to see if they would forsake Simeon for a prophet just as, they, just as they forsake him for a prophet so many years ago in Dothan. And what is more, in that moment, we see that the brothers are reliving their experiences. Once again, they see their brother bound before their eyes and then carried away. And then they walk home to their father, one brother short, once again. So Joseph is making them relive their experiences. And this was not an act of revenge. It was a calculated plan by a godly man who desired to see the brothers recognize their sin and recognize their guilt. It was a test designed to make the brothers see the truth of what they had done. And it worked. Because for the first time in 13 years, these brothers felt guilty for what they had done. The test exposed the truth of their hearts. It, ex it awakened their consciences. We see that the rough treatment, the three-day imprisonment, it awakened feelings in their hearts that they had never felt previously. They say to each other, they cry out, it says, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. And we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And then you see Reuben saying, See guys, I told you, don't kill our brother. Don't get rid of him. We're, we're, we're experiencing the reckoning now. Our blood is coming back to us. Finally, finally it hit them. They saw their sin for what it was. The text vividly describes the distress of their souls. They remember the shouts of their brother in the pit wallowing there while they just callously had a meal. They remembered the distress of their brother being pulled off to Egypt and they turned their back towards him. You hear that in the words of how he begged us and we did not listen. And so suddenly these brothers experienced the crushing weight 
of their sin. They experience the, the cries of their hearts. Suddenly their hearts have been touched. Before they weren't touched by Joseph's cries. They weren't touched by their father's cries. And now here they are. And it's awakened to what had happened. And they see a reckoning everywhere. The blood of their brother was coming down on their heads. They experienced guilt. And so in that prison, we see that the Holy Spirit was at work in the hearts of these brothers. He had done something that Joseph probably never would have expected, or even Jacob would never have expected. What the brothers wouldn't have expected. What these men experienced was a godly sorrow, which as we see, will lead to repentance. And also, we see that it leads to a healing of the relationship that had been shattered. So you have this this sense of guilt that they have, which leads to this very powerful conviction in their minds. And that leads us to our third point. So after hearing these words, we see that Joseph is just overcome with emotion. He He hears the distress of their soul, and he turns and he weeps. So he was bilingual, he, he knew Egyptian, he knew Hebrew, and so he could understand exactly what they said. And their words just tore at his heart, and he leaves the room weeping. And here you see that this is not a vengeful plot against his brothers. No, this is a man who deeply cared about his brothers. And he cared about the, the brokenness and the wickedness that they had done. But then after composing himself, he, he sends them away with grain and he puts the money back in their sack as, it's, as we read in, in verse 25. And then as these brothers are traveling home, we read that they, they go to their lodging place and they find the grain and they find money in their sack. You hear that with one of the brothers. He says, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And that is one of the most important phrases in this chapter. What is this that God has done to us? It's the the most important phrase because it demonstrates what God is doing here. They finally realized that they stood before the almighty God and that they stood convicted. They felt the crushing weight of their sin for the first time and they rightly understood that their sin placed them under the wrath of God's punishment. What have we done against God? And what is God doing to us now in punishing us? They recognized they not only sinned against Joseph, they sinned against God. And they deserved punishment and they saw the punishment everywhere they looked. And what we see is this is a turning point in the lives of the brothers, which would ultimately lead to the family being completely restored. So it starts off with guilt, and it leads to a conviction that they stood guilty before God. See, brothers and sisters, if God wanted them to pay for their sins, He could have let them die in the famine. He could have let them become another statistic. And in many ways, this is what He should have done. As we saw as we were working through this, this series, is that constantly reminded that this, this is the chosen family and this is how they act, and yet God doesn't leave them. Instead, God guides events in such a way that He saves them, not only saves them from the famine, but He does so and He brings healing to their relationships. He reconciles them. And in many ways, this is really the heart of the gospel. 
That salvation from sin leads to healing. It leads to reconciliation. It leads to the restoring of a broken relationship. Because congregation, you and I, we were created to live in communion with God. We were created to live in relationship with Him. But because of our wickedness, that relationship is severed. You and I have scorned His love. We've scorned His grace. We've, we've turned our backs on God. And for that, we face judgment. And instead of being part of God's household, we're now enemies of God. And so without Christ, without our Savior, we stand condemned before His awesome majesty. And we face a reckoning for what we've done. And so if we are to be reconciled to God, it, it must first start with guilt. Recognizing our sin for what it is. And so do we understand that we are guilty before God? Because if we're going to be reconciled to Him, we have to experience that. And by the grace of God, this is what our Savior does for us. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, He, he convicts our hearts. He awakens our consciences which are normally dead to our sins. And where we're apathetic to our sins, where we don't really care about them. But through the Spirit, He awakens our conscience so that we actually realize them for what they are. It's when you experience your sin and when you actually own it, where you don't push it aside, you don't minimize it, you don't uh, try to put it under the rug. It's then that the gracious work of the Holy Spirit is busy in our hearts. That guilt is designed to lead to repentance and healing in our relationship with God. And for this is the glorious truth of the gospel, that the God of heaven and earth, who has been offended, deeply offended by our sin, that He provides salvation for those who have, who have offended Him. That relationship was shattered, and He was the one who took initiative to reconcile that. And you look at the price of that relationship, to the price of reconciling that relationship, it was the blood of Jesus Christ. Because apart from Christ... We are still in a position of hostility with God. There is a wall that stands between us. You could put the two parties together, but there would not be a union. And it's only through Christ that we are reconciled. As it says, as Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 19, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace making peace and unity through the blood of the cross. You see, brothers, we see God, and brothers and sisters, we see God doing the exact same thing. He's fulfilling His promises to Abraham while at the same time paying careful attention to their shattered relationships in this family. And here we see that salvation from the famine would result in, in, in healing of the relationship. And it's the same for us. Salvation results in the healing of our relationship with God. Our sins can be forgiven and our wrongs are amended so that we can be united with Christ. But then what about the present? What about the present? Because there's probably many of us here who experience stress in relationships. There's probably relationships that have been torn apart and that you can't reconcile, that you struggle to reconcile. So what does that mean? What does this text mean then for that? Because not only have we committed, I mean, not only has people committed sins against us, 
But we've also committed sins against others. And so we probably carry a lot of wounds, deep wounds, where we've got entrenched personal conflict. So what, what, what happens with that? Well, in such circumstances, brothers and sisters, we, we often want to just give up, forget, just leave it, move on, and just forget about those relationships. But what we see is that when we are restored to God, when our relationship is restored, it, it, it has a flow-on effect to our horizontal relationships. It has a flow-on effect with how we deal with one another. When we experience forgiveness from God, it helps us so that we're able to, to start to forgive those who have sinned against us. And we are start to, to actually view those people who we struggle to love. We can actually view them as brothers and sisters. And it's only through the cross that we can do that. And so it's by the Spirit of Christ that we're able to honestly face not only our own sins and what we've done wrong, but we're also able to move on and also forgive others for the sins that they've committed against us. We can forgive them for their manipulative ways. We can forgive them for their malicious gossip. We can forgive them for the pride that stands in the way, knowing that there is forgiveness for that because we've been forgiven from Christ. And so we can begin to forgive those who've sinned against us. And we can start to work on those relationships that have been severed through sin. But then it happens sometimes, brothers and sisters, that you can, in your best intentions, try to mend a relationship. And that wall will forever be there because the other person is unwilling to break down that barrier. And so what, what, is, what does it mean for those relationships where you have tried earnestly to fix something that is broken, but it doesn't happen. The beauty of our passage is it points to a day, the future day, where all those relationships will be restored. Because that's what we see, as we mentioned, in the gospel, we see that God, He heals broken relationships. And so even though maybe you have done all that you can to mend a relationship, God assures us that one day we will be in the presence of all our brothers and sisters where there will be no broken relationships, where there will be no sin, where we'll be able to fellowship truly with one another, being united with one another in sinless and and, in perfect perfection. And so we'll be able to look forward to a day when we'll be united with brothers and sisters and we'll be reunited with our great brother, our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who made reconciliation possible through His blood. Amen.
Let us come before God in prayer. Merciful God, thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for what he's done. Lord, when we think of the cross, we think of the horrors of what Jesus suffered. We think of his physical agony. We think of also the the hellish suffering. And we are humbled to see that he did that for us. He did that to heal our relationship with you, to restore it, to make us alive. Because, Lord, in our sinfulness, we reject you. We, We rebel against you. We ignore you. But, Father, instead of shunning us, instead of destroying us, you take initiative to restore peace, to bring unity. For, Lord, you've created us to live in relationship with you. And we praise you. That in your grace, you are recreating us so that we may once again live in relationship with you. We thank you that through Christ, the enemy, the hostility between us is gone and that there is forgiveness. And Father, we also especially pray for those who may be experiencing profound guilt for sin. Lord, if for those whose consciences have been awakened to their failings, and are crushed by the knowledge of what they've done, Father, we pray that you would comfort them by the knowledge of our Savior, who was crushed for our sins, and who was forsaken in our place. And Lord, we also think of those who are struggling with strained family relationships, relationships at work, personal relationships. Lord, where there is much suffering because of sin, we pray that you would watch over them, that you would be with them, We pray that you would work in them, that they would be able to have insight to see where they themselves have sinned or where they may have fallen short. But Lord, also the way that you would help them so that they'd be able to forgive others and be able to move and to try to restore peace. Lord, this is one of the hardest things to do and we pray that your spirit would be with them, that you would equip them. For you are the God of all peace, and you are ultimately the one who works peace. And so, Lord, as, as they endeavor to, to work on those relationships, give them a heart and a spirit of forgiveness so that they might forgive as you have forgiven us. And, Lord, may they follow in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the friendships and the relationships that you give to us. Many of us have good friends Many of us have good relationships with our parents and church communities. And Lord, this is such an incredible gift because we live in a world of sin and brokenness and this is not something that we take for granted because it's not always the case. So we pray that you would continue to bless us with good relationships and bless us with good friendships. For Lord, you often bless us so richly through those relationships. Father, we also pray for those in the eastern states. We think of particularly those areas which are heavily affected by all those floods. Lord, there is more weather that is expected to hit those areas. And Lord, we pray that you would watch over the people there. For Lord, you are the God of weather. You are the one who created. You are the one who who made wind, rain, hail, storms, all those things. And Lord, even the hail, even the rain and the wind, they fulfill your word. And so we pray that you would that you would be with the people there who are suffering. Father, we pray that this would be an opportunity so that the gospel would be proclaimed, that your word would, would shine. 
And that even in their suffering that they would be humbled before your throne. And that they might also see our Savior for who he is and find faith and healing in him. Father, in the meantime, be with the governments as they try to mitigate the flood and and help people, watch over them, and give them all that they need. Father, we pray too that you would watch over us in the rest of this worship. We thank you that you bring us together to worship and praise your holy name. Lord, please bless our fellowship together, and Lord, receive our worship and our praise, not for, for our sake, but because Jesus Christ is worthy and because he has done it all for us. We pray all this in his name. Amen. You now have an opportunity to give of your gifts to the Lord, and it's requested for the South African needy churches. And as you do so, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks about the collections for the needy Christians in Jerusalem, and he says there in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must give, give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And afterwards, we'll sing of the great salvation that Jesus has obtained for us with the words of hymn 28, verse 1, 5, and 6.
As you depart this place, go with the blessing of God and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.